I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Terence Deacon. Terence is one of my favorite living thinkers. I think it's fair to call him a polymath. He knows a lot about subjects ranging from cultural and biological anthropology to neurobiology and developmental genetics, all the way to linguistics and philosophy. I've had him on the podcast twice before, and I encourage you to look back at those episodes. I will link them in the episode description. He has written extensively throughout his career about the origins and the evolution of language and the emergence of consciousness in human beings and the types of processes that that actually give rise to that. He thinks a lot about the, the biology of mind, how minds emerge, how brains are built, and the types of evolutionary forces and constraints that led to something like the evolution of language in human beings. And so we talked a lot about subjects related to evolution generally and the evolution of language in particular. We talked about the role that things like domestication plays in the evolution of various phenotypes in the animal kingdom, including language evolution in humans. We talked about brain development and genetics. We talked about various aspects of the evolutionary process and how they tie into the evolution of language. We talked about symbolic cognition and what makes human communication different from other forms of animal communication. And we even got into topics related to AI and large language models towards the end. So if you're interested in what human language is, how it arose and how it changes over time, this is a fascinating conversation. Again, Terrence is one of my favorite thinkers when it comes to these types of topics, and I highly encourage you to check out my last two episodes with him. As always, remember that I have a Substack, mindandmatter.substack.com. I put all the podcast content on that Substack in both audio and video format. You can sign up for my free weekly newsletter to get podcast updates, links to interesting research subjects that I'm looking at related to the topics I cover on the show, and all of my long-form science writing, which I'm starting to do more of these days. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Terrence Deacon. What have you been working on recently? Are you, are you writing a new book or anything like that? Uh, yes, I'm in the middle of a book called Falling Up, How Inverse Darwinism Catalyzes Evolution. Mm. What, is, what is inverse Darwinism? 
So everybody asks. It's actually not anti-Darwinism. It's a compliment to Darwinism. And I think it's a compliment that was there in Darwin's own writing, though he doesn't recognize it. Um, and that's why I've used the, the phrase. So Darwinism, in, in 1838, he came up with um, three ideas, just in his, shows up in his notebook, that basically drove the rest of his thinking. And it came up right after rereading, or I don't know whether he read the whole thing before this, but certainly reading Malthus on, on population. This, this whole problem that Malthus realizes is that reproduction outpaces resources. And Malthus, of course, had this dire prediction that this would lead to terrible things in England and Europe uh, because populations were growing so fast and resources were not growing fast enough. Darwin sees this and says, aha, but in the natural world, this is going to be the case. And that means there's going to be selection that favors a few over the others, uh, those that fit better with the contexts, that can do better, that can outpace the others. And so this sort of drives his theory, and he comes up with three ideas. He says, the first thing is that I noticed that everybody realizes that the grandchildren are like grandparents, as basically their traits are inherited, they're passed on down. And he says, but, but in fact, the second thing is that there is a great variety in offspring. That is, although they carry some of those traits, there's a lot of variety. So that's his second story. That's the variation problem. Uh, and then the third one is he says, but you know, then there's this great overproduction with respect to support of those offspring. And put those three things together and you get natural selection. That's Darwin's basic idea. Um, but notice that the Malthusian part isn't necessary. And it was what gave him the insight for natural selection. But if you think about things like gene duplication that happens all the time in evolution. In fact, whole genome duplication does happen, particularly in plants. Um, what happens is that the excess production doesn't necessarily mean that you're outstripping resources. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't take a lot of energy to produce extra genes or to have a single gene that's duplicated like in a transposon effect. There's not much energy used, but, but even in terms of multicellularity, think of the production of multiple cells, the reproduction by mitosis now that builds a, a large multicell body with maybe trillions of cells. There's some context in which some of those cells are in competition with each other, but not often. Usually it's a context in which there's no competition, which is excess resources in which overproduction is in fact the way life has to work. In fact, to stay ahead of the second law of thermodynamics, you can't just repair things. You have to make extras. You have to have backups. You have to have duplicates because something's going to go wrong eventually. We know that in terms of our own computer technology, that you got to have backups. you got to make copies of things. Uh, and that's how you keep things going. Well, that's how evolution, of course, works. Yeah. Uh, but what happens when you don't have competition? When you don't have this subtractive effect, if you think about it, Natural selection is a subtractive process. Yeah. It requires variation, but it also requires overproduction. You have to make more than you need because you're going to get rid of some. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so you're, you're taking away individuals who are unmatched to their environment um, and leaving behind those that are better matched to their environment. But, but I think I see where you're going here. If, if you think about something like gene duplication, uh, that's not happening at all. You're just adding a new thing 
And then that redundancy gives you space to evolve a new function without any actual competition there. Exactly. Or what it basically does is because there's redundancy, if one of them begins to degrade in some way, which will happen spontaneously. In fact, if you got two of them, uh, then if one degrades, it won't be eliminated unless it produces some troublesome project product. Um, and one of the troublesome things that are going to happen if you've got two of something is that you can produce too much. Mm. And too much can be a problem. I mean, that we have a classic issue of that with respect to trisomy 21, when the 21st chromosome uh, is tripled, tripled instead of just du duplicated. It produces Down syndrome. Uh, that is, the overproduction of a bunch of genes uh, is actually not such, such a good thing. So oftentimes when you overproduce, it, it can also have negative consequences. So in fact, accumulating damage in the extras actually could be an advantage. Uh, you could decrease it. But the other thing is that you could also, because damage on, say, one out of a few hundred uh, nucleotides in the DNA molecule, there's a little bit, of, little bit of damage, won't necessarily turn something completely off. It'll just kind of modify that function, oftentimes degrading it just a little bit. But there might be contexts in which a little bit of a change, a little bit of variation, now actually complements what's already there. Mm -hmm. And so, in effect, duplication, overduplication without elimination uh, allows enough redundancy that allows you to accumulate a little bit of variation and error without much cost. Yeah. And, and there's actually like, there, there's multiple ways this can go. So, so, for example, you know, gene duplication is relatively common. You, you get an extra copy of a gene. It's often not catastrophic. Um, it can be, but it's often not catastrophic. Yeah. And you can imagine, I mean, this, there's, there's examples of this that have been documented. Um, you know, one way this could happen is you preserve the original function in gene one, and then gene two just sort of goes in a new direction. But another way that you, you see sort of complexification evolve in the genome is what they call subfunctionalization. So exactly. if you've got sort of two jobs the gene is doing, and then you duplicate it, it can be that gene one now just does job one and gene two does job two. And now you've got the same functional outcome, but now you've got more complexity, more parts doing it. Right. And, and that's you know, the, the classic stories of those. One is the hemoglobin gene, which mm. is duplicated from myoglobin originally. And then the hemoglobin gene itself duplicates. And you've got an alpha and a beta. Uh, and they produce this, this tetramer that now actually does a much more interesting job of carrying oxygen because now you've got four iron atoms uh, in this four-part molecule that's floating around in your blood, carries more oxygen, but also probably gives it off more easily to myoglobin in your tissues. Uh, but in addition, the beta hemoglobin duplicated a bunch of times, and now we have different hemoglobins that are expressed at different times during gestation in the fetus. Uh, so that at times, because the fetal hemoglobin, of course, needs to take oxygen from mother's hemoglobin, so it needs to have a slightly different oxygen affinity. But as the fetus grows, that difference in oxygen affinity needs to change as well. Mm -hmm. And when it's born eventually, then you need to shift away from that because, you know, the stronger your own hemoglobin holds on to oxygen, the more difficult it is to give it off to your tissues. So when you get when you're born and you're getting oxygen easily just from the air, you now need to go back to a sort of a weaker hemoglobin, the standard beta. So this is a case in which it's duplicated many, many times. And in fact, the duplications all do different, very different subfunctions. Mm -hmm. um, one of them is within the tissue, myoglobin, one within when the blood. Oops, my my light went off here. Just let me turn my light back on. Um, uh, and 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 one has to do with uh, a different timing 
in, in the lifespan. The other way that subfunctionalization sub can work is, of course, if rather than modifying the structural gene itself, modify the promoter in some way. So it's mm -hmm. expressed at a different time. Well, that's, of course, the beta hemoglobins of uh, that they're duplicated into gamma and and so on uh, in fetal life, different time in the in the lifespan. But you can also have it produced at a different part of the body, a different mm -hmm. segment of the body. And of course, that's what's happened with all the Hox genes that, that make up our body. That the same gene with a slight variation is now produced in a different part of the body. Um, and that different slight variation now it can either produce, you know, very, very similar limb parts like our fingers that are very similar to each other or can produce very, very different structures mm -hmm. uh, by virtue of now not being in competition with each other, but now actually complementing each other at a higher order level. That is a level of whole body structures. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, this process is one that occurs at many, many levels. And I've been focusing on all of those levels. Actually, the one that got me thinking about it originally had to do with um, the fact that we primates need to eat vitamin C. We need to eat ascorbic acid in fruit, uh, whereas almost no other mammal, in fact, very few other animals in general, need it uh, because they have a gene that produces it. We actually have a pseudogene that somewhere back in our evolutionary past, we think somewhere uh, greater than 50 million years ago, actually produced vitamin C in all primates. But the anthropoid primates, the monkeys and apes, uh, lost this capacity. And, and they lost this capacity probably because they were eating fruit. And the fruit provided it from the outside world. So in effect, it masked natural selection on the gene, and it allowed it to just sort of pick up noise. Mm -hmm. So in fact, what we see now in most anthropoid primates is not only noise in the gene, with lots of stop codons in the gene and so on, but in fact, there's a major frame shift so that it's just complete nonsense now. Mm -hmm. um, and yet that means that we're addicted to vitamin C. We have to eat it. We can't make it ourselves like, like your dog or your cat can. Um, so as a result, a number of other things have happened. You know, we have changes in taste receptors so that we actually have this pleasing interest in sweets and, and, and sour. That, that is the acidic nature of vitamin C. But we also, you know, subsequent to this the, in, in monkeys and apes, uh, duplicated the opsins, that is the, the genes that are involved in producing um, light receptive pigments in our retina. And so the, what, what amounted to the, 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 the central pigment, a green sort of central frequency pigment, duplicated, got plugged right next to itself on the end of the X chromosome. Um, and that one began to degrade. And as a result, it reduced its sensitivity um, to freak to higher frequency became more and more red in its reception. And now we have this sort of red-green distinction, which of course is critical to determine the ripeness of fruit. Mm -hmm. Fruit is ripening, you know, giving a color signal to birds mostly initially that, that says, okay, now green, we were camouflaged. You know, you can't see we're yeah. not very edible yet. But now I'm going to make a, a clear change. Uh, and now you can eat me. Well, that's a good thing to know if you're a primate and you need fruit, you need to have this capacity. Yeah. So one of the things that happened here is that now a duplication outside the body, mm -hmm. it's not just like a gene inside the body, but now it's outside the body, uh, created a whole bunch of other changes elsewhere in the, in the body. 
So many genes are now contributing to the fact um, that we're getting enough vitamin C, getting enough ascorbic acid. We also have some, you know, blood-borne molecules and so on that make it easier to, to take it in and pass it along. Uh, a number of other adaptations responded now because we're, in a sense, codependent on something outside the body. So the, sort of the duplication effect is both something inside and outside, and it's part of it's going to play a role in in all kinds of um, interactive effects, including social behaviors, uh, the link with the outside, or symbiotic and commensal kind of behaviors that may be driving this or been driven by it. So a lot of these features, and what, what I'm interested in this new book is to just go through the whole list, follow from, you know, genes all the way up, I think, to even language. I mm -hmm. mean, language is a classic example where we depend on each other. You know, we have to be born in a social group. So we're addicted to the social group. That's going to do the same kind of thing that the vitamin C story would do. Yeah. I mean, there's multiple, there's multiple concepts there that are important. So, you know, to, to play with the vitamin C and the color vision example more, the basic idea here is first, uh, you have a lineage of primates that develops color vision, which is itself coming from an internal redundancy happening spontaneously. You duplicate your opsin genes that encode our light-sensitive proteins in our eyes, and now you can have this red-green distinction because you've got this serp, you've got this extra gene that is now yeah. free to evolve. And what's interesting there is is the redundancy is creating a context in which uh, the novelty is actually coming from the relaxation of selection. So it's, it's not just right. the subtractive process of taking away uh, individuals who are not good at in a particular environment, but you've created this redundancy, this surplus, this extra gene in this case, and it's free to evolve, i.e., I mean, what that really means is there is no selection to maintain its existing function because you've already got another backup copy. And then yeah. you're saying that ability... The color vision ability gives us the ability to detect ripeness uh, of fruits and things. So now we've got external vitamin C that we can um, readily find and ingest. That then does another relaxation uh, of selection on our uh, endogenous vitamin C production. And you know what's additionally interesting about this is once that relaxation of selection comes into play and that endogenous vitamin C function gets mutated away... Um, there, there's 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 a sort of unidirectional thing here right you can't you can't undo that change and so now That's you're right. really locked into uh it, it's almost like creating uh more selective pressure for more novelty to evolve because now you need to really really make sure that you're never going to lose that ability to uh find the vitamin c in the external world that's right so you've got to have you've got to like the flavor uh, you've got to have better abilities to move around in the trees. Um, it's an open question whether the opsin duplication was before or after the degradation of, of the ascorbic acid gene. Mm. That gene is called GULO. For, that's a complicated name. I won't go through it. But, but that gene, um, we know we have a pretty good sense of when that duplicated, and we're getting a pretty good sense of when we get... Um, uh, I shouldn't say we get a we had a pretty good sense of when that gene began to degrade, uh, and by just comparing lots of different primates, uh, and we have a reasonable sense of when the first duplication of the opsin did. In part because um, it turns out to be somewhat later, it turns out to be somewhat later because we see a different variant in old and new world monkeys, mm. uh, and so it's clear that old and new world monkeys had already 
begun to eat fruit and to become diurnal. Their eyes get smaller, their teeth change in, in the fossil record. Uh, so it looks as though they're diurnal, which means they're probably already eating fruit at this point in time. But now we see uh, that old and new world monkeys separate. And it's not until the separation that we begin to see a slightly slight difference in how color vision is processed in old new world monkeys. Old world monkeys like ourselves, or old world monkeys in that sense, um, have this, this three-color vision all based upon uh, one chromosome. In New World monkeys, it's across chromosomes. And so some New World monkeys, many New World monkeys, are just dichromats they only see in two colors. Mm-hmm. Or some, by virtue of an interesting combination of their gene, of their chromosomes, become trichromats. So it's an, it's an interesting problem. Uh, and I think what we'll see as we begin to look at some of these other adaptations for ascorbic acid um, development, uh, including the taste taste changes and so on and so forth. Probably even changes in the teeth and locomotion and so on may, may be involved as well. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, so it's just like, in essence, like a, a single, in this case, metabolic shift, losing the ability to produce vitamin C internally, it, it basically creates strong selective pressure that's going to be distributed across many different adaptations, right? You have to be able to detect fruits by sight or other means. You have to uh, be naturally interested in finding those things. You have to have the motor capabilities of, of obtaining them and so on and so forth. And I think you know where we're going with this because there's probably something similar happening in language, um, the, the story of language evolution. But I, I want to talk a little bit more about some basic evolutionary concepts so that people have the proper toolkit uh, good. when yes. we get to that point. One of the things I want to get you talking about is we can assume, you know, this audience, you know, I've had many podcast episodes with, with you and others on some of these subjects. You know, we'll, we'll assume people know the basics of natural versus sexual selection. Mm-hmm. But I want to ask you about when these things come into conflict. So cases where an adaptation is favored by the opposite sex, and yet it makes it harder for an individual to survive in its physical environment. What are some examples of that? And why on earth would that conflict ever arise to begin with? Right. That probably the best example of this um, is uh, with what are called widow birds in Africa. Uh, the widow bird is a, the male has an incredibly long tail uh, and during when it's displaying in the mating season, uh, basically flies low to the ground with a weird kind of fly flight that causes it to sort of go low and almost touch the ground and then come back up and touch the ground and come back up. But having a long tail means that that drags close to the ground means that you're probably pretty easily picked off by a predator under those circumstances. Now, it turns out that if um, and this is sometimes called the handicap principle. That is basically these guys are actually risking their lives to display the females uh, because they have these incredibly long tails. But if a, if a number of males are out there and many of them get picked off by predators, but one does not, and he's taking risks, then if a female chooses that male to mate with, it's likely that that male is more healthy than the others, more sophisticated in their flight, uh, maybe has less susceptibility to disease and so on. There are certain advantages that the female and her offspring will get from that process by picking a male who survived despite these so-called handicaps. Um, The male, on the other hand, that can actually survive under these circumstances, um, is also likely to have many more offspring. 
So it's an advantage for both males and females, even though, even though probably 80% of the males don't make it. Mm-hmm. Most of them get picked off. Um, one of the experiments that was done years ago, I can't right now remember the names of the experimenters, but they basically clipped the tails off of some individuals and used superglue to attach that to other individuals. So some individuals had absolutely longer tails and some individuals had shorter tails. Well, of course, that's going to correspond to different predator effects. You know, they're going to be preyed on differently. But it turns out that the females preferred the individuals with extra super long tails. Now, what that would suggest is that although over time, those guys would be probably be picked off um, and wouldn't make it, at least for a brief period of time, females don't have any limit on how long the tail ought to be. The longer mm. the tail, the better it looks like for them. Um, in part because over time, there's going to be a balance. At some point in time, as tails elongate in, bir- in these male birds, um, it's going to be a, a trade-off. So at a certain length of time, the amount, the risk you take of being preyed and never reproducing compared to the advantage you have of maybe producing a lot of offspring, it's going to balance out so that natural selection will in effect set an upper limit on the length of tails. And interestingly enough, does not change that for females. Now, why wouldn't it change it for females? Well, ultimately, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward story. If the environment changes, there are fewer predators, better, better for females to choose the longest tail, even if it's way longer than normal. So there's no real limit on, on female choice here. That's going to limit what females think is the optimal tail length. But there's going to be an optimal tail length set up by the environment mm-hmm. um, by virtue of, you know, What's the probability of a male surviving with a long tail? So there's a case in which sexual selection, which is driving this choice of males by females, uh, and natural selection, which is setting an upper limit, so to speak, on the length of tails, um, uh, actually are setting up a balance. And what will happen is it will run to the point. uh, So if if fewer predators in the environment, for example, we should expect that tail feather length should get longer. Um, if there's more predators in the environment, we should expect that tail feather length in males will be shorter. Um, so that to some extent, this balance between sexual selection and natural selection um, will actually be very useful. It's sort of fine tuning to the environment. Mm-hmm. And so I suppose that would imply that um, as selection pressure in the survival sense uh, gets lessened. So for example, if uh, a species somehow finds itself in an environment that's less dangerous, there's less predators, you would expect uh, male phenotypes to start to become more and more driven by mate, just raw mate preference rather than survival value. In other words, sexual selection will sort of beat natural selection in that sense. And, and it will run to the point that it hits this upper wall. That yeah. is, it won't be able to go forever. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what's interesting about that is you know, when you start to think about our own species, right? We've we've created uh, social structures that have eventually uh, allowed us to create societies where the environment is not as consequential for us as it was when we were uh, more primitive hominids walking around with with saber toothed tigers, uh, you know, hunting us. Um, so in other words, we've removed some of that selective, that natural selective uh, survival pressure. And so the expectation would be that more and more of human male phenotypes over evolutionary time in our lineage should be uh, more strongly, uh, uh, they're, they're being pushed by natural or, uh, sexual selection more than natural selection. And yet, 
the major predators on humans are humans. Mm. Um, so this is going to change the balance in a different way. What it says is that cooperation may be the safest thing to be, to be a cooperator, um, but to be fearful of others, of strange others, mm. uh, but be a very strong cooperator within your familiar group. Uh, these things might be uh, an advantage. So we, there, there will now be sort of different balance, different features will be in balance and will be shoved one way or another. And of course, to be a good cooperator if, as, a, as a human being, you also need to be able to communicate well. You mm -hmm. need to be able to tolerate the variation of your close relatives. Uh, and you need to, to some extent, cooperate, um, succumb to what the, the group's ideas. Um, you maybe even need to sort of, you know, follow along to stay in a large stable social group. Uh, so there, there are going to be a number of things simply because to acquire language, to avoid intergroup predation, so to speak, um, there are going to be a lot of very different features at work. Uh, now, the troublesome thing is that as technology develops, of course, it's going to, it changes the environment and it's going to amplify certain things uh, and damp others. Now, I don't know, I would guess that in the amount of time that significant technological developments, including you know weapons of war, uh, beasts of burden, and so on, and excess resources, and so on, it's going to be fairly recent in, in human evolution history, and probably not a lot of natural selection has been at work. Um, I think that's probably a good thing because it would have driven us, I think, in even more extreme directions. Uh, nevertheless, I think those biases that were already there uh, can be easily amplified by the environment in the same. And so I would guess that the last, you know, five, 10,000 years of human prehistory has been um, a case in which those biases have been significantly driven, although I don't think it's made a big difference at the, you might say, genetic neurological level. You know, another... Another area that's very interesting is when we think about um, Darwinian processes that are happening within individual organisms over the course of development, and you know this concept of redundancy comes back into play, um, but in, in a kind of a, a different, interesting way. So, for example, you know when we talk about things like gene duplication, these are stochastic molecular events that that just sort of randomly come up uh, with some frequency, but baked into the developmental process itself, in particular, the development of the brain is this sort of, a, you know, intentional quote unquote, per over overproduction of synapses. Um, and it's, it's actually a feature of brain development that you produce an excess and then you, you That's take right. away that excess early in development. So can you talk about those kind of competitive Darwinian interactions that, that our neurons display as we're developing and why, why things would be uh, set up that way? Right. No, it's a very interesting issue because obviously you're seeing both happen. You're seeing this overproduction. You're seeing, um, remember that one, one thing that's going to happen is that brains are going to be different in different species for different reasons. Uh, you know, a classic example is uh, as primates, both of our eyes face forward. But if you're, you know, a, a prey animal, you want to have more 360 degree vision. So you want your eyes to the side. Uh, there's certain things you have to give up to do that. But the question is, uh, with different positions of the eyes, do you need to have mutations in the nervous system that say, okay, you know, your eyes are this far apart. In order to make it work, I've got to, you know, I've got to have this gene change. Well, in fact, even among primates and among our own species, there's a lot of differences between the width of our eyes. Um, one of the ways of 
basically having a nervous system that doesn't have to sort of, with each subtle changes in the periphery, you know, I change genes, you know, I got to re-evolve changes and connections in the in inside. One way to do it is to have the development of the nervous system adapt to the body it's in. So if you think about the, the Darwinian story, think, you know, think about the body as the environment. How is the brain going to adjust to a variable body? Well, the answer is it's going to work like natural selection does. You're going to generate connect extra connections. Um, you're going to allow both op options to take place. Both all, all possibilities of eye position, for example, might work. Um, but then you've got to use the relationship between the periphery, the input of the eyes, and the competition now set up between synapses to organize vision in a way that matches the outside. So in many respects, embryonic development, and at many levels, including extra limbs, extra fingers, and so on, people that are born with a sixth finger, for example, usually it's a working finger. It's because the nervous system has said, okay, you know, it's developing in a way that hasn't anticipated how many fingers you're going to have. Mm -hmm. It's not all pre-specified. Not pre-specified. Which is actually a huge feature, right? Because then you don't have to encode all of the detail in the genome. That's right. So, th But this, what it does mean is that now epigenetic effects are going to be much more powerful. Uh, that's going to have to be important at many, many levels. Once you allow epigenetic effects, that means also the environment can begin to have more of an effect on the ultimate phenotype. Uh, and with the nervous system, we certainly know that. If you, if you damage peripheral systems in some way, you can actually change radically change maps in the central nervous system. Uh, so, and that's because it's responsive to this. But now here's the other piece is that, uh, you know, we have quite large brains for primates. Um, how, how's this competition going to be modified? How's it going to be affected? We don't oftentimes think about the, the story of brain evolution in our own species as an evo-devo effect. That is, mm -hmm. in which evolution has been affected by developmental effects. But clearly, the wiring of the brain, since our brains are much larger in a smaller body, um, the wiring is going to be different because of this. The, the Darwinian-like effects are going to be modified. And I think about this sort of like I think about um, uh, uh, gerrymandering in, in elections. You know, we, we shift the balance in some way or another, and you actually change the consequences. Uh, give some a better chance at competing and make others less likely to compete. Well, competition is driven in part by a, a, a phrase that's commonly used is that neurons that fire together wire together. Well, if you've got more of them in a certain place, they're going to have an advantage. They're going to have a gerrymandered advantage of taking over more space in the nervous system. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So it's you can essentially get get more votes by creating more neurons or altering the the ratio of connections from one place to the other. But right. to illustrate this, I think I think a good example, and you can probably give many of this, is um, so this idea of of natural selection and, and competition between neurons and from different you know parts of the brain. Um, when you deprive someone of like one sensory modality, one part of their brain that we think of as being visual or auditory or whatever can be taken over by another modality. Um, are there some examples of that that illustrate this this competitive in a, process? In, in a brain as large as ours, it doesn't really have that kind of a massive effect. Um, even congenitally blind mm. people who are don't really have a lot of auditory responsiveness in visual areas, for example. Um, but a smaller brain, 
where distances are not so huge, like in rats and mice, uh, there's significant changes in the mapping structure uh, that can take place. Uh, probably the, the best studied and classic example has to do with whiskers, uh, uh, the, what we call fibrissae, on the faces of cats and mice and rats and so on, these long, um, you might say extra thick, uh, extra strong whiskers that stick out. Uh, it turns out that if you look in the part of the cerebral cortex that is the map of what you might call tactile space of the body, there's actually a very precise map of whisker positions. You can actually stain the brain of these animals after, after birth and after death and look at a very precise map that looks like a kind of a checkerboard of places that each respond correspond to a whisker position. But if in early life you take a, a young rat or mouse and you clip out some of these whiskers, um, the map will be different. The map, the existing whiskers will in a sense have taken over the space of the missing whiskers uh, on the map. So the map actually is now corresponding to the body. Uh, we also find this in the case of congenitally deaf uh, mice, for example. You can see that you know because of a genetic effect, maybe disturbing the cornea, the, the cochlea uh, of the auditory system. Uh, what can happen is that you see a, a shift in which visual and tactile areas have taken over some of the auditory areas. Not completely, but basically it disturbs that map. In the human brain, and, and I would say in most primate brains because they're fairly large, um, that kind of competition for space is probably slightly different. It can't take over quite such a large area. So I suspect that it's, it's minimized as brains get bigger. On the other hand, with the enlargement of brains, what we're seeing is a sort of functional version of what we were just describing in terms of redundancy by virtue like gene duplication, for example. Now, if I have input going to the same area, but it's twice as large. Mm -hmm. I only, I may only need half of that or a fraction of it, or, or I might only need to use some of the cells in it for the original function. And there can now be a sort of relaxation effect that allows more differentiation of function in a larger brain. So I do think that there is an effect that's analogous to this in brain development, and it's partially because it has this two sides. It has, well, I like to use this old, this phrase, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Well, you know, all selection and no variation and no overproduction, no relaxation makes evolution dull. It, it can't do as much. Uh, you really need to have this sort of freedom to produce variation that's not a problem. And so it shouldn't surprise us that play in animals with complicated brains might also play a very significant role like this. That is, this is something we've ignored because we think of complexity and, and greater capacity is always requiring work and, and, and you know, you gotta select on it and you gotta get rid of things and hone things in. We tend not to focus, I don't know whether it's just a, a, a cultural thing or, just the history of the field. We tend not to focus on the play side of it much. Um, and we mostly just talk about it in terms of variation. Well, it's not just variation, it's tolerance to variation. Uh, that, that, that allows you to explore, uh, just as play in, you know, in predators allows them to explore various means of playing with their prey or sneaking up on prey and so on. Uh, it's, it's this exploration. So I think this is, 
that's why I call it an evolutionary catalyst. Yeah. Process I mean, so, makes it more likely that certain things will happen. Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is literal. So if you've got built in redundancy and this overproduction, that's just an intrinsic feature of the system of how, how brains develop. Quite literally, uh, play represents uh, a different pattern of walking through a neural space and a different pattern of exploring that space is going to give you a, a different um, selection pattern, which is going to, you know, it's ultimately going to give you a different set of features than you would if you were solely focused on survival and you were quote unquote working in your environment all the time. Right. Well, and, and if you think about it, play in mammals in general is the context of relaxed selection. Mm -hmm. You make mistakes. You're allowed to make lots of mistakes. You don't even have to work with the real thing. You know, just with with effigies of of prey. You know, I you know I can be a cat chasing a ball of yarn uh, and practice. In effect, not because I'm practicing being a killer. I, I, you know, it's just fun. And so, part of it also has to do with you might say selection for having fun. Uh, and I think part of what we describe oftentimes as neoteny in our, our sort of childlike, like, you know, the way we like to play, like we're playing with ideas now, um, is in part just because we've got the capacity to do that. And that actually is an advantage because it exposes lots of op opportunities that we wouldn't have discovered before this. Mm -hmm. It allows us to combine things in unique ways. Uh, and of course, uh, we human beings have, have done this extraordinarily well once we've developed linguistic capacities and our technologies and so on. It allows us to sort of offload all of this play also onto other things that we love to do, including, you might say, the arts. Uh, the arts are an example of play. Mm -hmm. One of the, you know, one of the things that's, you know, the areas that, that you've explored in some of your writing that I, th I thought was very interesting is um, domestication and how domestication really ties into a lot of the things we've been talking about around uh, yeah. a relaxation or and a reorganization of selective pressures. Um, you know, oftentimes when we talk about domestication, we think of humans domesticating other animals like farm animals. And of course, right, if you're building a barn and a fence and making sure the wolves never get too close, you're relaxing the selective pressures um, in the environment that these prey animals would otherwise be exposed to. And therefore, they're going to evolve in different ways they would not have otherwise evolved. Um, but we've also, uh, as, as you've pointed out and others have pointed out, we are also a self-domesticated species. And, and that's also very interesting and important to think about. So just starting with the basics here, how exactly as sort of an evolutionary biologist, defining it in terms of selective pressures and, and constraints and relaxation of selection, what exactly is domestication? The problem is that domestication is many things. Um, and we have one word for it. Um, clearly, we have domesticated species. That is, we've not imposed selection so much um, in terms of the outside world, but we've selected. We've selected for animals that can work to get to can hang out together in large groups without fighting and competing. Um, therefore, we have to select against population stress effects. We have to select against aggressivity. Uh, if we're going to have a bunch of them together that we're going to raise, we as breeders select those as we select various traits in dogs and so on. Um, we're doing the selection. That's active domestication. Clearly, that's that's going on 
with lots of, of human domesticated animals. And of course, plants. We select for certain features in plants by simply uh, allowing some to reproduce more effectively and others to not reproduce. So we're playing this role, the, the role that actually got Darwin thinking about this in the first place. That, that's why he called it selection. Selective breeding is playing a role in this. And so the question is now for different species, um, what's being actively selected in, in terms of selective breeding? Well, clearly uh, reduced aggression. We even go farther, further than this, in particular in herd animals where males might typically be competing and fighting with each other and actually injuring each other in competition for mates and for controlling large groups of animals, we, we very often neuter the males uh, so they never get to that stage. And so they can now actually um, stay in the large social group without being very aggressive and without being damaging. Um, and yet we've also selected for more stress tolerance uh, because being in a large social group uh, and being confined may be stressful. Um, but so we, we select for this. And what we see when we look at a lot of these domesticated species, when we say domesticated, typically we mean by humans. Domestic, of course, refers to being in the home. Um, you know, so basically hanging around us, um, we're going to see that there's many of these features that are characteristic that we would want to make possible. So the human beings have played a significant role in this. And as a result, domestication in uh, animals that we're gonna eat uh, actually produces changes in their bodies in the same way that domestication of food crops um, has amplified those parts that we will eat that will be edible as opposed to those not. Those are very distinctive, you might say, in, enforced or human um, selected domestication. Uh, but then there's domestication in other ways. Uh, and we now think that dogs, for example, self-domesticated, that is wolves self-domesticated to become domestic dogs, in part because uh, they also needed to be able to find this wonderful resource that we provide. Garbage piles, you know, we, the things that we can't eat that are still edible if you got the right kind of um, digestive system and, and and masticatory system that you can maybe crack into the bones, you can chew these things and, and get food that, that human beings would not want to keep. Um, but that meant that, that wolves that were more tolerant of each other in large groups around these um, would actually do better. That is, they are better in social groups that were not so aggressive, that would be willing to hang, hang around human environments that might otherwise be stressful and dangerous. Um, and might not be a threat to people, so that people wouldn't go after them. They're going to self-domesticate in order to gain access to this. But then human beings can then, of course, take advantage of some of the things that they do well, which is finding prey and so on and so forth. So a first stage of self-domestication leads to humans controlling domestication uh, in dogs. So then we get a really complicated interaction here. So the dogs, in a sense, self-domesticated in order to be able to take advantage of a resource. Um, we could say the same thing about humans. Now, what was the resource that we had to take advantage of? Well, uh, certainly in the savanna of our very early evolution, probably close to three million years ago, um, there was a lot of animals that are being preyed upon, typically large bovids and so on, on, on the on, on the fields of and, and savannas of Africa, um, 
The one thing that the predators couldn't do is they didn't have jaws strong enough to break the largest long bones of big bobbins. Mm-hmm. In other words, the, the sort of the, the femurs and so on, these, these huge, very, very dense bones. And, you know, dogs chew on them, but they never break through them unless you break them up and cut them up so they can get the marrow. But I suspect that our ancestors for a long time were using stones and things to crack open nuts. Um, we already had, I think, probably maybe going back almost 4 million years, we probably had this capacity to crack things open. Um, and so I don't think it would have been much of a stretch for our early ancestors to begin to crack, figure that they could go in after the predators and scavengers had finished their jobs and still find food there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Crack well, open bones. But they had to do so now in a very different context. Mm-hmm. And to do so in a context in which exposing themselves to predators out in the open savanna, um, that meant you had to have a cooperation. Somebody had to keep the predators away while you're did you hit your head down, uh, chopping on this this bone, maybe cracking a stone so it became sharp, uh, and realizing that the sharp edge could also scrape off some of the meat. You could now go in there a little earlier, but you now really had to chase off the predators. <laughs> but now you have a situation in which there's this wonderful resource available, but you have to be able to work as a group. The competition between you has to be reduced because you're trusting somebody to keep the predators away while you're getting the food. And the guys that are keeping the predators away have to trust that you're going to share that food at some point when you get back and climb up a tree where you're safe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, and you, you obviously need to be able to uh, communicate with a certain level of sophistication to, that's to right, do all that. That's right. To know who's doing what, when, and to know that it's reliable. Uh, so all of this, I think, sets us in a situation a little bit like the dog situation, in which there's this wonderful source of nutrients out there that's not available to anybody else, and that if you have the right tools and the right social organization, you can get to it, uh, but it's going to select for all this. Hmm. It's going to select for many of the things that are selected for in normal domestication as a change in stress response and ability to handle being in large mixed groups, possibly um, reduction in competition, possibly competition over females. And it might select for a form of communication that made it easier to do that, mm-hmm. which is what I think language does. It allows us to communicate about the past, the future promises, expectations, and so on in a way that other kinds of communication does not. Um, I think that had to be a very early stage in this process. And probably, I, I think, probably took a couple of million years uh, to develop to the level we have now. That's a very, it's a very long-term process. But in effect, I think it begins with a kind of self-domestication. Mm-hmm. And of well, course, if, if you think about language itself, it already requires that you're in a social group. You can't get it unless you're in a social group. Uh, you can't get it... it unless you're in a social group that can survive over generations because mm-hmm. language has to be passed on and developed socially over a long period of time. It's not something that just develops in a few years or even, even in a lifetime. So that was sort of a prerequisite. And I would guess that socialization and language sophistication probably co-evolved over a long period of time, one pulling the other along. That being part of a very unique kind of domestication that, that we were involved in. But in this mm-hmm. case, it's us. It's a self-domestication story all the mm-hmm. way there. Yeah, I mean, w- one of the pieces that's fascinating there is, um, I mean, there's multiple threads you could tie into this, but one of them that's salient to me is if you look at the uh, 
metabolic and digestive adaptations human beings have compared to other animals. And you just sort of say, what is our metabolism digestion look like? Does it look the most, does it look like a herbivore, like a cow? Not really. Uh, does it look like a carnivore? Does it look like this, that, or the other? And the answer in terms of things like stomach pH and various other features of our GI tract is we have similar digestive systems to uh, scavengers, in particular meat scavengers. And, right. and I mean, that's basically ties into the story that you were telling and that I think others have told that a key piece of early human evolution, and I'm not sure how much explicit evidence there is for this, is that we were basically uh, power scavengers who could not only organize ourselves to ward off you know, big, scary carnivores who made kills, um, but we could take advantage of these food sources that gave us, and once we could do that, they were not only food sources, but they're very, very nutrient dense, which maybe even helped unlock uh, future brain evolution, basically. Right. I, I don't have a lot of um, faith in the, that we needed food of a special sort to build big brains. There's a lot of theories like that. Mm -hmm. I actually don't think that's a, much of a driver. Um, it's a sort of, you know, if you've got it, then you can build it. Um, I, I think it probably works the other way around. Um, uh, my suspicion is that, that brain size um, may have evolved in part because of a better food source. But we do know that, that, that human vegetarians and, and people that don't get a lot of uh, seafood and so on um, don't have a lot of uh, the particular kind of lipids that are necessary for building the myelin of brains um, still have pretty normal brains, large size brains. Um, I don't think we have a lot of metabolic evidence uh, that there is a that the metabolism made brains possible, but this is an empirical question, and we'll find out as we begin to pursue this. Um, and we'll know in part because of the genetics of it, as we learn more about the genetics for for converting uh, tissue. I mean, converting nutrients into neuro neurological tissue, how it's done under circumstances of extremes. Uh, all of this will, I think, help us understand it. But we'll be able to also begin to look at the the human genome and and to some extent compare it to some of the paleo genomes that we now have. Mm -hmm. I think it's some idea of how this has changed. But this, unfortunately, we can't go back. Of course, we don't have paleo genetics that goes back more than, you know, than you know, not even 100,000 years. So mm -hmm. we're not going to be able to get into our deep history this way. One of um, a, a really nice example of this sort of domestication and, and relaxation of selection phenomenon that will tie in a little bit more explicitly to getting us thinking about communication in humans are some fun examples in songbirds. Um, I know that you've written oh, yeah. about you know Bengalis finches versus their their wild cousins and how their songs are distinct and the distinctions arise out of you know the relaxation of selection that comes from domestication. Could you maybe rehash that story for us and and I can do that. In, yeah. And first of all, we have not, I don't want to be clear, we have not definitively proved that it's just relaxation that's involved. Mm -hmm. There are probably many things, like any other thing. What we find in these birds, we've now begun to do, uh, one of my former students has begun to do some good genomics in comparison, comparison the wild species to the domesticated species. And what we do find is that there's some significant genetic changes. Some of them are typical of what we find in domestication, that is, reduced stress response and so on and so forth. So that's, that's quite clear. So... One of the first things is that we do know that almost all domestication requires a, a few changes that are very similar across groups. Um, but then there's those aspects that are different. The story that, that interested me initially was this, that um, the ancestors to Bengalese finch, 
Um, they're called the white back munia or white rump munia um, from China, Taiwan, and, and, and areas in Asia. Um, basically has a fairly innately structured song. By that, I mean that uh, it doesn't vary from individual to individual, from group to group very much. Um, and in fact, uh, if you're isolated, you don't hear anybody singing. Um, nevertheless, if you're a young male who reaches maturity, you'll begin to sing. They go all, all songbirds go through what we call a subsong stage uh, as they reach puberty, which which involves producing a song that is not like the adult song. But what they do is by listening to themselves, they correct it. And over the course of a few weeks, um, a young bird will begin to develop a song that sounds more like an adult of that species. And we assume that this is because they have what amounts to a kind of an auditory template that they've inherited. Um, and uh, maybe even a motor template that biases what kind of so sounds they produce. But when they produce their first, what they call subsong, some people like to compare it to babbling. I think it's similar but different in a lot of res respects. But let me just describe the bird case, first of all. And that is, they'll produce a, a vocalization that's got some features of the adult song, but not many. But if they hear themselves sing, they'll correct it slowly but surely, song after song after song, they'll sort of converge towards the normal adult song. We assume that's because they can hear themselves sing, and they hear that it's not quite right. We know this because deafened birds never do this. Mm. If they're deafened, they always produce a weird song that stays weird doesn't get corrected. They can't hear themselves sing. But now the question is what happens when you're domesticated? The, the Bengalese finch that we now understand was domesticated at least in the, the example of the Japanese that we've been looking at. And this is work by a man named Kazuo Okanoya um, who's in, uh, in Tokyo, the university there, um, has been pursuing this his whole career. And what he finds is that um, the white rump munia, which has this very fixed, sort of you might say innately pre-specified song, that it nevertheless has to learn by listening to itself sing. Um, the, the Bengalese finch, which has been in captivity only for about 250 years, very short period of time, was raised mostly bred for its coloration. And what happened is that for the most part, they bred away the brown color, the sort of camouflage color that the wild species had. So it's mostly white with a couple of patches of color on it. Uh, and of course, you can now breed for coloration patterns. It turns out that one of the standard things that happens in domesticated species is um, a group of cells called uh, neural crest cells um, actually play a role in both building the stress response because they actually become part of the adrenal gland, the adrenal medulla. Um, but they also play a role in pigmentation. And so what happens during, during domestication, as you begin to relax selection on this stress response, it also tends to produce kind of more modeled changes in coloration. And one of the things it does is it oftentimes produces lighter coloration. And so that clearly happened in these birds, and we're seeing the evidence of it genetically. So they, they're clearly seeing this reduced stress response, and they were bred for this. It's just a coincidence that the, the stress response and the coloration are sort of linked together. And this is just simply because of this, this epigenetic effect. 
Um, but now what's interesting is that the other thing that happened is that they began to produce more variable song. Not only that, they now produced a song that had to do with not their own singing alone, but if they heard another member of their species singing right after hatching, that would sort of fix in their mind, I think that it would become their new, you might say, auditory template of what a sound, ought to, what a song ought to be like. And as they reach maturity, their subsong begins to converge towards what they heard. In fact, we now know that if they hear two or three what we call tutors sing early in their lives, they'll oftentimes converge on a song that's a little bit like both of them, a mix of them. But they also have a song that's variable. It changes from time to time from how they how they sing. They shift different, you might say, different motifs and different tunes get moved around with respect to each other, sort of theme and vari variation-like effect, whereas the wild species is very stereotyped, stereotypic in the way it produces its song. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, so the species was being bred for coloration, not for song, but the song, song nonetheless changed. But the song changed. So the, the argument that I've made here is that... Um, if song was being used to do two things, in the wild, what song does is it um, tells potential mates, uh, I'm of your species. I'm not some other species. That's an important piece of information. The second thing it does is it exposes you to predation. Got to be a little careful about it. Um, but in effect, again, it's this trade-off between predation and showing yourself off. It's, again, typically males are producing this. Um, and... Um, Maybe if you're a better singer, you attract some females that you wouldn't do otherwise. Or if you sing more, if you're less stressed in your singing, maybe you'll do better. But of course, if you sing too much, you might give yourself away to predators. Um, so there's a bunch of trade-offs here in the wild. In captivity, singing plays no role in mating. In captivity, if you're being bred because you have a certain coloration pattern, with another individual has a certain coloration pattern that the, the breeders are uninterested in your song and who sings what plays no role. Basically singing is now in a sense relaxed. There's no, there's no sexual selection on singing in this case. And if there's no sexual selection on singing, now whatever contributes to singing, whatever genetics contributes to singing are relaxed in their selection. And so that over time they can degrade. So my hypothesis was, and we it's, this has now been tested out uh, by another group in Edinburgh years ago uh, by just a simulation, uh, not by actual looking at the genes yet. We, and we, as I said, we don't yet have the definitive genetic answer to this one. But what we can now say is that that if this relaxed, that the template you have for what a song ought to be like is relaxed. Um, now the only bias for what a sound ought to be like is what you've heard, your experience. But because it's not genetically pre-programmed, there's lots of ways that experience and learning can now play a role that they couldn't have played before. Because now what you hear, how social, social you are, um, how you interact with other individuals, how interested you are in other songs, um, all of these things can now play a role in what song you ultimately sing. As you relax selection on just one part of the brain that's involved in this very, very, you might say, very strongly innate song structure, as it's relaxed, now many other aspects of the nervous system become potential biases in what song you produced. So one of the things that's now clear is that in the Bengalese finch, um, much more of the forebrain seems to be involved in song learning and final song production and playing with song. 
and in this respect, what, what's happened is that for the most part, we now see a transition in just 250 years by virtue of relaxation from a relatively innate form of communication that is passed on genetically to where the genetics degrades and now song is passed on socially. But notice the analogy here to us. Um, we need to hear others speak in order to pass this on. Um, one of the things that's happened also is that um, in the Bengalese finch, many more parts of the forebrain seem to be involved in song communication. Mm. Even though it's it's not playing a very critical role in terms of who reproduces with whom. Vocalization in almost all primates that we understand is for the most part not cortical either. It's handled by deep brain structures, the midbrain and the brainstem in part, but also in the basal forebrain, there's some areas that are involved. Almost no cortical areas are involved. Language is almost exclusively controlled. I mean, we've got a lot of control in deep parts of the brain, um, but, uh, but language requires lots of the brain to be involved. We used to think it only involved a couple of areas in the left hemisphere, Broca's area and Wernicke's area, they were called. We now have a pretty good sense that a large fraction of both hemispheres is involved, particularly in the semantics aspect of language. Um, so what's happened is that vocal communication in our species has now been shifted from a very few areas deep in the brain being distributed over a large part of this cerebral cortex. Uh, that's something similar to what we see uh, in the Bengalese Finch example. Hmm. Obviously, there's major differences. One difference is that the song that's produced by Bengalese Finch doesn't necessarily mean anything. Right. Um, whereas language, of course, has this whole other symbolic aspect. It refers to things, and it can refer to things by its combinatorial. So, so language is very different in this respect. But in one respect, this might tell us that a relaxation of some innate communication might have played a role in our own capacity to communicate as we do. Uh, that is, uh, it allowed this diversity, it allowed the play of cortical areas to now begin to play some role and be now to undergo also subsequent selection for their combinatorial interactions and so on. So I'm not making the claim that that we just had relaxation of selection to get here. But this was a major factor. Relaxation of selection probably played a role in this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> some of the analogy with the, the Finch stuff is, is striking in many ways. It also starts to get you thinking about, you know, when you think about traditional or classic theories of language evolution, it's like, wow, language is so, you know, people like Chomsky were basically saying, as I read him, wow, language is so complicated. Um, how on earth are we going to explain how this evolved? In, right. in, and the fact that it's learned, like gener each generation, um, each generation picks it up, um, de you know, de novo, essentially, you know, his, his, his ultimate answer to that was basically, well, the whole thing must be genetically pre-specified. And this right. is offering a very different kind of answer. In fact, it's it's almost the inverse. Right. Um, on the other hand, what we can so think about what what gets selected and what doesn't get selected. Selection requires that something is done the same way, generation upon generation, or done in a very similar way. Mm -hmm. It requires that a similar part of the body or the brain is involved, generation after generation. 
that kind of redundancy is necessary for selection to act on a particular locus in the genome, uh, because it has to have that kind of redundancy and repetition um, for the statistics of selection to work. But if you think about how words refer to things, we don't have any innate words. You know, yeah, if Chomsky's theory was right and we had innate grammar, why don't we have innate words? Hmm. They, isn't that simpler than grammar? But we don't even have innate words. And that's because the reference of a sound to a thing in the world is so disconnected that it can be changed so rapidly. And we know even in existing languages, within a few hundred years, reference changes pretty, pretty radically. And within a few thousand years, we've got languages that they can't be interpreted with. They, they are so divergent. So first of all, there's probably not the kind of selection on language effects, but there will be selection on learnability, on sociability. There will be selection that favors the kind of attention we have, the kind of ways we produce sounds, because those are going to be done the same way generation upon generation. So there's a little bit of noise in the background. I hope it's not disturbing this. No, um, I can barely I can barely hear it. All right. So the Oh, I was just gonna Oh, I, I can't really hear hear anything. Can, can you hear the, the humming in the background? Not really, no. Outside running a machine. I don't want it to disturb what we're talking about. No, I, I can I, I can't even hear okay, it. Okay, good. So the issue is that there are many things that can be selected uh with respect mm -hmm. to this in terms of language. Um but the fact that it has to be done socially, that in order to work language, we have to we have to have acquired during our early development the same pattern of interpreting sounds. We have to have this, this shared habit of interpreting sounds the same way uh, in a social group. That means we have to be good at social interaction. We have to pay attention to each other. We have to want to mimic each other to some extent. Um, all of these are things that are going to be selectively favored. So we can say there's going to be a lot of selection for the biases to make this easy. Um, but the innate part, the structure of language, and I think this, even the structure of grammar and syntax um, are very unlikely to be driven uh, genetically. Uh, in fact, I have a whole other way of thinking about it because I think that most of these, what we would call universals in language, I used to think that, that language couldn't have universals because of this issue about selective capacities, you know, why some things can be selected and not others. Um, grammar and syntax, which is so complex and so distributed, seems to me the last kind of thing. If, you know, if that was innate, there, there ought to be a lot of innate words. Neither mm -hmm. are the case. Um, and yet, there is a lot of syntactic and grammatical similarity across languages. All languages you know, have things like words. All languages have things like that play some role like a noun or a verb. All languages have things like sentences. Um, this is These are very common features. Why are they common? I think they're common not because we have a, a sort of, we've inherited them genetically, nor do I think they're the result of cultural processes. In other words, I think that we've gotten trapped in this idea that there's only nature or nurture or the interaction of nature or nurture. I think, in fact, um, that grammar and syntax have universals need for because it was neither nature nor nurture involved. I think this has to do with the structure of communication itself. And I think the best example of this that we know of is mathematics. In mathematics, we assume that somewhere on some planet 
circling Alpha Centauri, if this was ever possible, that they were intelligent beings, very different than us with a very different evolutionary background. Um, we would assume that if they figured out how to work with quantities, that they would know that you can sort of now, you can add recursive additions and you get multiplications and recursive subtractions and you get divisions. But there will be some numbers that won't be divided by anything but one in themselves, primes. We assume that every society, every culture, every intelligent population in the universe will eventually, if they figure out how to work with quantity, will figure out that there are things like prime numbers. Prime numbers will be discovered. We don't say that people invent mathematics. We say they make discoveries in mathematics. Mm. And they make discoveries in mathematics even though the mathematical tools they use are culturally created, are variable, decided, you know, we're going to use some, some marks for some things and other marks for other things. We're going to make those. But, but we discover that zero is useful. We discover that there are prime numbers. We discover that we can come up with calculus. These are discoveries. It's neither nature nor nurture. It does require that we have these capacities and mental capacities to think in these terms. I think symbolic capacities are important here. But the discoveries, because they're there in the world, and this has led many, I think, mathematicians to think sort of platonically, like there are these ideal concepts out there. My argument is that it has to do with, with what's necessary in order to communicate quantity uh, and to manipulate quantity without confusing quantity. We can't have one equaling five spontaneously because we've done a bunch of manipulations. We've got to keep number separate. So we have something in mathematics that is neither nature nor nurture. We discover it because there are certain ways that you can manipulate quantity that maintain consistency. We have certain ways that you can manipulate symbolic communication and maintain agreement of reference. I know that I'm referring to things. And I do so because there's got to be certain combinations have to happen. One of my favorite examples is why do we have sentences? Why do we have things like verbs and nouns? Is it because there, there are things in the world like verbs and nouns? Well, it's sort of. There, there are changes in actions and things, um, but it's not quite that simple. On the other hand, think of a, a, a word like loud. Mm -hmm. A word like loud, soft, noisy, cacophonous, you know, it brings up a lot of associations. Um, but it doesn't by itself refer to anything in particular. But if I do this, that was loud. I could say clapping my hands can be loud. But now doing this and saying clapping my hands, um, the noun part of that sentence could have been replaced by what we call an index, something that is correlated with it. The sound is correlated with it. What we see is that nouns play a kind of a finger-pointing role. They point to something that the verb will modify. Mm -hmm. In order for symbols, which are abstract and refer to other symbols, like loud referring to soft, um, 
to refer to something in the world outside of this referential system of symbols pointing to symbols pointing to symbols, to refer to things in the world or to elsewhere in the communication that we've given, we've got to have pointers. Nouns serve as pointers. This is why we can use things like this or that. That's loud or this is loud. They just point to something. Um, and not surprisingly, we human beings start our lives for the first years of our lives with a sort of built-in pointer. Yeah. <laughs> we point to things, and it helps us acquire this. I think that, in effect, um, what actually is happening over the first year of life is we're developing a lot of sophistication with this using this relationship of pointing, of indicating that ground symbols in the world. Mm-hmm. And so we hear words and we point to things. We hear words and we point to things. And it allows the first, during the first year of life us to begin to acquire this capacity. Um, I think this is why it's so important that we have this curious bias that other species don't have. This where we can use our hands to both manipulate things, but also to indicate things. And children are just well devised to do this. And this has been another, I think, selection. We've been selected to do this. Notice that also there are disturbances in human development, particularly in cases of autism, although autism is a broad spectrum of things. A lot of autistic children do two things that are very atypical. In extreme autistic cases, they don't pay attention to, to, to where heads are looking, where, where somebody mm. is looking at things, how eye movement is working. They don't tend to point. They don't tend to indicate and to follow others' indication. Um, this makes it very hard to acquire language. Mm-hmm. If you can't start out with this bias in which you you learn how pointing works, you learn how indexicality works, it's going to be hard to get into language. You're going to be a late developer. You're going to le- use language differently. Um, so we already know that this is a, a feature, um, a clear feature of language learning. We we take it for granted with young children. That you know, this we point, we we point, they point, we look at things, they look at where we're looking. You know, this is all a part of this. This has been brought out by a number of researchers, um, a part of this process. But this ability to link symbols to indices to get them to ground their reference in the world is neither nature nor nurture. This is necessary if you're going to communicate symbolically. It's built into what we call the semiotic infrastructure of language. You have to have this capacity. And there, that's going to limit things. So to clap my hands now and then five minutes later to say loud, they're not connected to each other. They don't, they don't indicate each other as well. They're not coupled. And as a result, the link is not there. So it also produces all kinds of other constraints on grammar and syntax. Things have to be correlated with each other. The ends of, of nouns uh, to describe multiplicity, uh, like plural have to be attached to the noun or have to be nearby the noun. Uh, the past tense in verbs has to be attached to the verb or nearby the verb. It has to be a modifier, and a modifier has to be next to it, like the clapping was next to the sound loud. Um, there are a lot of constraints that are now going to be built in. Um, I think what we've ignored is, is how many of these constraints are neither nature nor nurture. And that as we've developed language, as it's elaborated and become more verbal and less pointing, um, we've had to sort of build more and more of those constraints in. 
no matter what language you speak, no matter where in the world you are, it's going to be different, done differently. But those constraints are going to be there anyway. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah, so is is a fair way of summarizing that that you know when you say that that this is not a matter of nature or nurture, you know the 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 rules of grammar and the structure of our language, it's not out there in the sense that you know there are planets and rocks and mountains out there independent of us, uh, but it is out there in the sense that as social creatures, there are just fundamental universal constraints on how we can intelligibly communicate with one another. And that's that's what we're seeing. Right. And these are, these are going to be, as I say, it's not about being a person, um, but it will be about being communicating with symbols. Mm-hmm. Once you communicate with symbols that have been ungrounded, that is the sounds uh, don't are not like anything that they refer to, there's no likeness. There's no necessary correlation even. Most of the words we've been using are not correlated with anything in our immediate surrounds. Um, those are all broken. Now you've got to reintroduce those connections in different ways. Um, that's just built into communication. Um, the key here is that it, that's in the world. It's like gravity is in the world. We can take advantage of it because it's in the world. It's just there. Um, this is just there, but not there unless you've developed your communication to a certain level. Mm-hmm. Um, but so now what this does is it sort of inverts the whole Chomskyan-like story, which it says, you know, what we thought was the most innate part is in fact neither nature nor nurture. I mean, one of the arguments over years has been, you know, or, or maybe culture is what creates these universes. Well, no, culture doesn't create these universes. Culture is just sort of taking advantage of them there, that are there. They didn't have to be there innately they didn't have to be there in culture so it's not it's not an either or or not a combination of the two um but you need both you need biases in learning biases in indicating and you need cultural tendencies to sort of allow us to work together to want to communicate to each other to want to know what each other's thinking and so on um all those things have to be there as well so there's got to be all of those things at work um to then take advantage of these biases that are built into the problem of communication. So this is in effect, not just inverting the sort of innateness story. It basically says, oh, there's a lot of innate stuff and there's a lot of cultural features and they've, they've got to be interacting, but they're taking advantage of structure that's built into the very nature of communication itself. And that's the neither nor, neither, neither nor part of this story. Mm-hmm. So then it actually is it's changing the debate totally. And unfortunately, I think we have not come to the point where we can sort of do that parsing well yet. Mm-hmm. How do you, th- so when we think about, so we can think about this over the course of an individual's development, we can think about say a one-year-old who's really good at indexing and pointing into the world and that sort of uh, physical indexing capacity is then used to build up um, the symbolic capacity um, and the more abstract parts of, of language and communication. When we think about how this evolved in our species, you know, you, you said before that you think there was maybe a period, uh, an extended period, you know, perhaps a couple million years where we weren't using language in the sense that we, you and I are right now, but there was something like a proto-language. How do you think about that arising? Is it is it something to do, does it have to do with, say, gesture-based communication and simple rituals around interacting, you know, whether it's like in a mating context or a feeding context? How do you think about the transition from uh, right. language back to proto-language and, and whatever came before that? Well, so let's start with before that. 
Um, was one of the things that, that I've done in my work is to begin to understand um, connectivity in the nervous system. One of the first questions I was asking had to do with, you know, how is it that we're producing these sounds? And the answer is that most other species, um, particularly of mammals, uh, don't have the ability to carefully time the, the production of the tension of laryngeal muscles and the production of breathing. Mm -hmm. Most innate vocalizations, think about laughter and sobbing, two of our innate vocalizations, um, they don't involve articulation. So when I laugh, ha, 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 you know, my mouth is open, my tongue isn't moving around, my lips aren't opening and closing. Um, uh, it's a vocalization that's produced only by the autonomic nervous system. That is, it's produced by the fact that there's this automatic system that says, I'm going to time my breathing to be spasmodic, and I'm going to open my mouth and tense my, my larynx in timing with this. Mm -hmm. Sobbing, another one. <laughs> Again, I'm not articulating it. Um, my mouth and tongue aren't moving in any kind of timing with this. That's sort of open mouth, groan, scream, no articulation. This is typical of primate vocalizations. Primate vocalizations are not articulated. The one close exception are gibbon calls, which have a kind of, they're, they're like this. They're, whoa, 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 whoa. Um, what happens is that there's a slight opening and closing of the mouth, very minimal. Again, no tongue articulation associated with it. Um, so that's as, as close as we're going to get to pretty complicated vocalizations. Um, the other thing is that most primate vocalizations um, also involve sound production on the out-breath and in-breath. <laughs> For us, probably the only case of this is in sobbing. Think about this in a sob, you know, <laughs> but we make sound on the in-breath. And notice that to make a sound on the in-breath is painful for us. It's really difficult. All vocalizations, almost all human vocalizations, with respect, with the exception of sobbing, are done on the out-breath. Um, and in fact, we now know that the, there's some structures of the larynx that probably make this in-breath sound, what we call ingressed, ingressed sounds, um, very difficult to make. There's a little bit of ingression in some, some languages, but it's very, very minimal. Now, so that's one thing. The other thing is that this separation of vocalization is very important. Because if we had a lot of conscious control, if most animals had conscious control of where their larynx was tensed or not, um, there'd be a problem with eating and drinking. Uh, we have that problem because we can choke because we get... We're talking while we're eating and drinking, and, and, we can, and we say it goes down the wrong way. And it's very uncomfortable, very painful when a little bit of water or food gets stuck down there, or it can be dangerous. It can be deadly, mm -hmm. um, which, in which case the Heimlich maneuver is necessary uh, to sort of dislodge food in the larynx. Uh, now, and that's because, of course, the, these two pathways cross over each other. But normally, if you've got a system that says keep all vocalizations automatic and innate, and when you're eating and drinking, shut that system off and have swallowing and chewing and articulation of the tongue and so on um, being automatic also, but completely separated. Then we're safe. It's very unlikely that you're going to choke. 
There are other adaptations in terms of positional larynx, the way the epiglottis moves and so on that are also going to play a role in this. But the real challenge is, how are you going to be able to precisely time the movement of my mouth and tongue and lips and jaw with breathing and with tension of the laryngeal muscles? The key is there has to be cortical control of the larynx. But to keep the larynx and breathing automatic in other species, there is no cortical level projection down to the nucleus that controls these systems. It's called the, called the nucleus ambiguous. Ambiguous because it's hard to find in the <laughs> brain. But it's there. And what we know in other species, and part of my work in the distant past now, was doing to try to find if there's any connections like that from the cortex projections that go right down to control this nucleus, which controls the muscles, the intrinsic muscles of the larynx and some of the muscles of breathing, like, like, like the diaphragm. But what we know in us is that we can do this. The very fact that I am articulating, moving my mouth and tongue uh, very rapidly in producing all of these sounds and timing it precisely with when I produce a sound from my larynx or not. And the fact that I can sing, that I can raise my tone of voice or lower my tone of voice by changing the, the tension on the larynx, um, independent of whether I'm aroused or not, um, tells me that there is a significant, in humans, a significant cortical control of the larynx. But this means that we can now sort of, we have this problem, you know, if I'm if I'm speaking and suddenly a very humorous thing happens, and oftentimes my laughter interrupts my speech, I can't suppress it. Um, these systems are now potentially in competition with each other because we have, in humans, superimposed a cortical connection onto this once automatic system. That's something that actually had to happen against all the potential costs of having this competition possible. So over time, this new connection pattern in which the cerebral cortex is now controlling laryngeal features and, and breathing, so we can time our breathing, so we can hold our breath, so I can time my breathing so that I finish this sentence before I have to take a breath. Um, all of these things have to be now controlled cortically and therefore learnable and controllable in a complicated combinatorial way. Um, those connections weren't there in our ancestors. Almost mm -hmm. certainly were not there in the Australopithecines. Um, who are probably communicating like, <clears throat> like most other primates do. Um, and probably had to develop over time. I think we talked earlier about this sort of um, gerrymandering notion that if, if certain areas are larger, they have a better comp competitive capacity. I think in part the large enlargement of the forebrain helped increase competition for synapses in the nucleus ambiguous. Mm. So the cortical output now could outcompete other systems and stay connected to the nucleus ambiguous in our species, in part because this, this cortical enlargement, I think that played a role in it. But what that meant was that there's a cost. It's changed the number of ways we can vocalize because, you know, when we're, when ingressing sound, producing sound by breathing in, articulation doesn't play much of a role. You know, my artic 
Take a what I'm trying to breathe in, I can't even do it, in fact. Mm-hmm. You just don't have the ability, but by producing sound out and then moving your mouth and tongue and lips, now you can produce a lot of diverse sounds. But you've got to coordinate all these systems. That, I think, took probably a million, million and a half years to develop. I think it was probably well-developed, um, even in our ancestors and, and our, you might say, our our parallel lineage, the Neanderthals and the Denisovans that were around over the last 100,000 to 200,000 years. I think they also had these capacities. I think it developed early on, but this means that it couldn't have been the first thing that developed. Mm -hmm. And it probably developed along with enlargement of the brain compared to the standard, because that's what will have determined how much of the cerebral cortex was controlling laryngeal activity. So I think actually looking at how brains enlarged over the last two million years is probably giving us a sense of of how this competition in which the cerebral cortex begins to control vocalization um, developed. And so I think we can see it as developing slowly over the last, uh, by 500,000 years ago, where we see brains almost as large as ours. I think it was probably well-developed by then. Mm-hmm. But certainly in the first, you know, two million years ago, as it begins to develop, as four brains begin to develop with respect to this area deep down in uh, the, the brainstem, um, I think we're beginning to see this asymmetry, asymmetry developing. Mm-hmm. So what that suggests is that early on, symbolic communication was almost certainly not spoken. Mm. So, so it would have been probably gesture-based or something? It had to be more gesture-based. It maybe was more ritualized. Mm-hmm. Gestures interacting in some ways, one way to communicate symbolically, um, might be, in effect, to make sounds, simple sounds, but associated with movements. Um, if you think about young kids who are just learning language in the first year of life, they do a lot of gesturing and ah, 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 kind of stuff. I, I suspect that that's not a, a bad model of what early language was like. It's, you're, you're now coupling this capacity. But the other thing that we see in young children is babbling. Mm. They produce, we're already be, they're already experimenting with this capacity to use the cerebral cortex to play with sound. Young children have this. I don't think babbling was, a, was an issue in our early evolutionary past. Um, but maybe playing with ritual, playing with, you know, acting things out uh, collectively. Um, I think that the auditory vocal part of symbolic communication developed slowly over time. Mm-hmm. But now why did it develop? I think there's a number of interesting reasons. Number one, it has to be learned. If we're going to communicate symbolically, we have to learn how to do it all the same way, mm-hmm. interpret it the same way. But in sign languages, for example, Um, There's asymmetry with which hand does which. If I'm to learn from you and say, here's my my gesture, like that, Um, it's easy to learn it in mirror image. But we have to sort of invert it. Ah, I'm going to do it with my right hand, not my left hand. But looking at me, you would be doing it in your left hand, and I'd be doing it in my right hand. Um, so there's an asymmetry in terms of any kind of visual communication. But if I do this, if I do this sound, pa, 
Notice that you producing it doesn't require you to reverse positions. Mm -hmm. You don't have to take my position. You just have to hear it and produce it. Sound does not have this sort of spatial inversion, this mm -hmm. mirror image inversion that has to take place. So to learn to communicate visually is more difficult. Hmm. To learn symbolic communication, arbitrary movements of the hands or body requires that we have to automatically invert. Now, I think that, that that did happen early on, but it was not easy. I think it's one of the reasons why we do copying pretty well and why we're interested in sort of taking another position, another point of view. I think this this is makes that kind of thing easier. On the other hand, to shift to the auditory verbal mode of communication bypasses that problem. That means it's going to be much easier to acquire co copied sounds and to produce many, many more variants easily. So I think that part of what was happening was also um, the auditory vocal mode of communication is just easier to, to develop socially, to pass on, and to acquire many more variants very rapidly. And so it's clear that we've, we still use pointing. We still are involved in gesture. Um, gesture plays a major role in communication, face-to-face -face communication mm -hmm. in particular. Um, it's never missing from, from our linguistic communication, but linguistic communication can happen without it. Mm -hmm. and, and we can acquire it rapidly without having to look at each other, just to listen to each other. Um, and of course, we can produce much more rapid sound as we can produce words at a very rapid rate um, because it's just articulation of sound. So it's a very complicated story. And I think one of the problems we have is we've still been using simple stories to talk about the evolution of language. It involves development. It involves pointing. It involves neither nature nor nurture. It involves social domestication. So we have to be self-domesticated to be in large enough groups that are stable for a long period of time. All of this stuff. This is a very complicated story. So the, the human evolution story has to involve all of these features. Epigenetic features, neither nature nor nurture formal features, um, learning abilities, biases in terms of attention, all of this stuff. Um, I, I think we're not nearly it's complicated um, in our thinking about this problem as we need to be. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's the future of the field. Why this is such an exciting area is there's so much to study. And this will also mean that there's so many other factors involved. And one of the other things that's important about this is once you have many, many constraints affecting it, many, many biases distributed in many aspects of our nervous system, now some can fail. Mm -hmm. and we can still do well. We have this meta-stability, in a sense, because there's so many things contributing to it. Now, the redundancy story comes back. Mm -hmm. Because we've got many, many ways to acquire this, um, we can afford to have some of them fail. We can afford to have some of them not work. In the same way that, that New World monkeys, which have sometimes color vision and sometimes don't, nevertheless have other adaptations that sort of take take into advantage take into the advantage of the fact that they they can't see color change, 
but they can see other things. They can make other distinctions. Um, there's some redundancy in the system. And, and my guess is that, again, this brings us back to this sort of inverse Darwinian story, that we need to keep track of that redundancy piece as well. When I think about um, when I think about the idea that that we uh, have constructed this social niche for ourselves that's allowed us to to self domesticate, when I think about things like the um, you know I think you, you can describe language probably as an ornate <laughs> phenotype, um, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and naturally that will get you thinking about sexual selection. So when I think about you know natural versus sexual sexual selection, when I think about the constraints that are relaxed by having um, the social niche we've constructed for ourselves. What and and when I also think about sort of proto language and the the earlier steps in language um, development or the the evolution of language in our species, you know, I start to think about okay, what are the other rituals that are universal, like languages across human cultures, that also tend to. Uh, be plugged right into the symbolic cognition capacity that we have. Um, one of them that comes to mind is, you know, of the rituals that I think pretty much all that are universal across cultures that we have around mate selection. Um, you know, right. when we think about a wedding, for example, um, there's explicit symbolism. Um, it's obviously to do with reproduction. And I, I just wonder what, what do you think the other sort of um, ritual behaviors that were in that, that were contributing to the evolution of proto language um, actually were. Um, do you think they had to do with things like marriage and reproduction? Do you think they had to do with things like hunting and food acquisition? Um, some of the above, all of the above? Yeah, uh, first of all, some of the above, all of the above, yes. Um, my own work, dating back to the mid 90s, um, I was arguing that actually the reproduction problem was a very significant one. It's in fact been taken up by others, have been called uh, Deacon's Paradox. The paradox is, is this, that if um, you need to cooperate very closely and trust each other to gain food, so it's a bunch of males out sort of on the savanna um, chopping up a carcass and having some individuals fend off the predators and the scavengers uh, that could do harm to you. Um, you then have a problem. You first of all have to trust each other. So, so intense competition can't be too strong. You've got to trust those that are protecting you. Um, you get back to the tree, so to speak, where you can climb up the tree and 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 eat safely. Um, well, one of the one of the problems is that now somebody's gathered the meat, um, but others who didn't, you know, need it. So if there's competition over resources, that's going to make it hard to get meat tomorrow, because now either you have to change roles all the time uh, in some systematic way, or there has to be an agreement about sharing. Mm -hmm. um, but this also goes along with offspring and mates. So now, first of all, if the food you're getting is gathered in a dangerous environment, the worst thing to do is to bring a lot of newborns and young toddlers mm -hmm. into that environment. Yes, yes, They're the individuals that will wander off, will get picked off by predators and so on. So one of the things about going after a a food source that potentially has danger associated with it is it's going to sort of drive a, a little sexual division of labor. So mostly probably be agreeing males. But now here's the problem, that males are also going to be in competition for, for reproduction. Males are going to want to compete 
as they have in most primate species for mates in this respect. They compete by either chasing each other out aggressively or threatening in some ways, or more likely being the only male or the alpha male in the group um, in which no others are willing to compete with you or you know, vie for access to females. But now you've got a problem because now you've got both the sharing of resources problem, you've got the trust problem, you've got the cooperation problem, but now um, if you're in competition for mates, if I'm the if I'm the I'm the guy out there protecting the one who's getting the meat, maybe I'll just sort of look the other way, and then I'll have access to to more mates because that individual gets injured. Yep. Um. So the trust has to be there, but that means that in effect there can't be a lot of competition over mates. The mate competition has to be reduced in order just to get that food resource, which is incredibly valuable and inaccessible to any other species, um, you now need to have some way to sort of reduce competition for mating in order to have this kind of trust trust cooperation built. Um, my guess is that that's going to require socially not only exchanging the resources we get from hunting, from, or not hunting, but from scavenging, um, and to share it with females and their offspring, but also you're going to have to, in a sense, now make it so that there's less competition. Now, one way to reduce the competition is to have exclusive mating or more or less exclusive mating, where some individuals are not going to be able to mate with other individuals and vice versa. Um, if everybody is mating, then in a sense, you're decreasing the sexual selection on mate competition. But how do you stabilize that? Mm. One of the challenges here is, is this is, of course, what lots of modern literature is about. Literature has always been about this kind of competition among males and, and you know, infidelity and all this stuff. Yeah, this, this, this drives um, social, social systems today, even. Mm -hmm. The one thing that we find is that typically these are, these are crimes. These are things that we treat as somebody has broken the rules. That is, we've got to have social conventions, symbolic social conventions, that basically say, oh, you can't do this, you, you can do that. Um, so think about how most, um, I won't call them marriage, but most mating, when we set up in most human societies, marriage is a way of organizing mating and mm -hmm. organizing responsibilities around offspring care and so on and so forth, and, and resource provisioning. What happens is typically you get the marriage activity is done. First of all, there's a bunch of symbolic activities that's about overtly promising. You know, it's it's not just saying I do and I will and I won't, um, but in fact, demonstrating it in some way. Oftentimes, a marriage ceremonies involve some kind of marking, you know, carry a mark on the body, a, a, a tattoo or a or a scarification, or, or a ring, for example. Mm -hmm. um, something that will be permanently attached to the body that says, I've, I've done this. It's an index, using our, our semiotic terminology. It's an index like a signature. is. It's mm -hmm. attached to something. Yeah, it's very it's, public. And it, yeah, but, you know, public. back in these times, uh, it's not just your friends and family at the wedding. It's every human being you ever interact with. <laughs> yes, that's right. Why? Because you've got to be able to demonstrate you know, who's gaining access and who doesn't have access. These are people who are likely to be 
both your supporters who are going to find out if somebody's cheating on you, but also those individuals who could potentially cheat on you. Mm-hmm. You got to get everybody together and you got to get two families together, two lineages together, <clears throat> because they're going to hold the other lineage uh, responsible for certain things. And then you do all this in the context of all this. That means you've got to have a way of communicating collectively. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got to interpret things the same way, or at least similar enough so that you can trust it. That, I think, is a a great context for developing symbolic communication. It's highly ritualized. It has to be distributed to a large group. You have to be able to trust that everybody interprets these actions the same way. Uh, The actions may have to enact something and then show it to be blocked. <coughs> so I think about a classic way of doing this might be, you know, what if we don't have language, don't have any way to talk about this? Maybe to have somebody act out mating or act out something and then have it interrupted or blocked. Um, now we actually have a way to say, no, that's not, not going to happen. Everybody sees that this is not going to happen. Maybe everybody... Everybody who's possible has to be involved in this sort of interaction play. Um, We can begin to replace that maybe with a pantomime activity, a shortened version of it, a compacted way of demonstrating that activity, or maybe a sound associated with it. Um, I think that's the ideal context, I think, in which symbolic communication was probably first developed. It's developed there because... There's the most intense sexual selection threat associated with this, the most intense cooperation threat. That is, if somebody cheats, cooperation is off. Nobody has resources. Everybody loses. So now you've got a collective interest in keeping it going, a collective interest in people, not just yourself, but others, your family members, your friends, who let you know that somebody's cheating on you or otherwise stop the possibility of somebody cheating. Um, This is a context in which I think most of those features are intense. Most of the sexual selection features are the most intense. That's where I think this kind of communication probably evolved initially. Uh, And then of course expanded into many other domains. There's almost no domain in which symbolic communication once it's well-developed actually is advantageous. The question is, under circumstances in which symbolic communication is difficult to acquire because you have very few adaptations for doing so, when would it most likely appear? It's going to appear in which the constraints are most intense, in which the the competition for keeping it going against intense tendencies to break it up are are most intense. It's not going to be where it just helps things out. It's going to be where things are really intense. And I think this is where it's going to be most intense. Hmm. What, what, I mean, I I think you, you were kind of just getting to it, but like, what are the, what are the features of language that we find attractive in mates? Does it have to do with the information being communicated? Does it have to do with, uh, um, you know, how things are being said, you know, when you think about, if we just think about humans, like zoologists think about other animals, when we look at how humans use language in mating rituals, what is it that males and females are each 
picking up on in the language use of potential mates? Is there a clear answer there? I think there's not directly. Dar although Darwin thought that, that language evolved sort of like birdsong does, in which language was, uh, speech was a, an advertisement. Um, my suspicion is language by itself, probably not. But notice, think about song. The songs, uh, Darwin argued that song preceded language, pre pre preceded speech. Um, but in fact, um, when you listen to popular songs, most of them are about something having to do with mates or love or infatuation or, or being cheated on or whatever. Um, we still gravitate towards singing in which the content is about mating in some respects. Um, it's not a, not a surprise that song, also that music communicates emotion. But one of my favorite philosophers in the past is a woman named Suzanne Langer, who wrote a book called Philosophy in a New Key, plus a lot of other books on, on symbols and things like that. But, but what she argued is that music um, is in a sort sense a communication of feeling. In fact, she wrote a book called Feeling and Form, uh, in which she was basically saying that, that music is a sort of, um, it has a structure that's sort of like an emotional structure, elation, depression, uh, excitement, um, resolution, musical tones, musical patterns have that feature. Now, it shouldn't surprise us because, of course, most emotional communication, <laughs> are, are produced by tonality. This is something we inherited from our primate, primate ancestor. So changes in tonality, in excitement, um, in all kinds of attentional features and so on are going to be communicated by change in tone. Notice that in language also, what we call prosody in language, that is the way I produce the words I'm producing, you know, the, the, the tone of it and, all, and so on, it can, it can actually produce, uh, you, you get the emotion of what I'm saying uh, in this process. That's because... We haven't lost those primate calls, those, those tendencies towards it, or the tendency to, to interpret them emotionally. They've now just become, in a sense, subordinated to our symbolic communication. Mm. But I can amplify it in terms of prosody, but I can amplify it even further in terms of just music. And so it can now, it's carrying a lot of that emotional communication, and it shouldn't surprise us that the major content of music has something to do with sexuality, particularly in popular song, particularly in music that's that communicates to younger people. Um, it's almost always about that. On the other hand, we do have some music that communicates other things like militant music, um, music uh, about anger and so on. They get a little of that, but but particularly around the time when, when people are more focused on mating, you know, adolescence and late adolescence, you know, music is all about sexuality. Mm -hmm. It's all about mates, all about falling in love, all about um, who is, you know, a, a wonderful lover. This, you know, she's so perfect. He's, he's so handsome. He's so wonderful. Look at all the nice things. And of course, in our species, it's not just being dominant and beautiful, it's also being a good caretaker, a reliable person, you know, a, a, 
I'll never cheat on you. Uh, that kind of communication. That we don't trust just in speech, but if it's in music, it sounds a little more influential. Um, so I do think that there is a major feature of this that's still with us. We've not stopped being primates. We have not given up the primate vocal call system. Uh, we have it there. It's just been reduced significantly and made very distinctive by being incorporated into language. Another feature of language that's super interesting is that um, language itself evolves. Um, it, it clearly evolves faster than uh than biological creatures evolve, um, you know, by orders of magnitude. Yes. Yeah, much faster. Um, and 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 you know, you've written that there are basically uh, that language is subject to selective influences that are probably quite alien from those that affect um, our brains and bodies. Uh, so, what exactly do you mean by a statement like that? Well, so number one, uh, language learnability is going to be an issue. Um, languages that are learned at a young age and learned well are going to be passed on more effectively. They're going to be more stable over time. So there's particular aspects of language, particular um, phonetic structures that are difficult for young children to acquire. Um, they're probably not going to be passed on well. Um, certain combinatorial effects, syntactic effects, um, that are quite complex, that are not you might say, intuitive, will not be picked up early on. We we'll have to wait until sort of later child, childhood to get these com complexities. But as a result, um, they will also not be passed on as well, in part because early on the brain is very plastic. And what we acquire, acquire early on um, tends to be more easily automated and harder to get rid of. So in terms of, if we think about language evolving, it has to have a reproductive component. And then it's got selection on it. Those things which are reproduced more stably and with, with more fidelity over time, um, that means they're going to be more learnable. So I think one of the things that's happened is that languages have evolved and have to evolve to be more learnable at an earlier age. So one of the things that we find is that children can learn multiple languages easily if they're exposed to multiple languages at a young age, before they're age three and four. Mm -hmm. um, but only a few of us do pretty good at learning multiple languages well after that period of time. This is telling us that languages, to some extent, language evolution and language change, and therefore language acquisition, is going to select for languages that are easily learnable, and learnable at an early age. So the structure of language evolution has got selection features. We're selecting our nervous systems, our development, um, our ways of communicating are all part of the, you might say, the environment in which to which languages have to adapt. One of the things they have to do is they have to adapt to brains and how primate brains and how human bias brains still acquire this. But in particular, if they can do it to younger brains that don't learn quite the same way that older brains do, that have certain disadvantages and certain advantages, um, those languages are going to be passed on better. And those features of those languages are going to be the languages that, that the features that most languages inherit. So I think language evolution 
has to be thought of in terms of it, it's evolving to us, to be adapted to us. It's not evolving because it's an organism, but it has many of the same characteristics. Yeah, in many ways it behaves sort of like an organism, even though it's it's not. not clearly not an organism. And, and of course, the interesting thing is it's, it's distributed. It's not just in me. You know, it can't be just in a single individual. It has to be distributed. So it has a lot of interesting statistical features that will have to do with social groups and how groups form and break up. That's going to affect it. So languages have to have this capacity for conversation, for asking, for telling, for explaining, you know, all of the features that languages have, have to do also with the fact that they're, they're a social phenomenon. Those, that's part of the selection, the selection, the environment in which languages evolve. Given that, um, you know, lang- given what we were talking about in terms of how, how language evolved, um, the types of the types of things people are most concerned with that they use language for around mate selection, around trusting uh, the the individuals you have to interact with to. You know, stabilize the social structure. You know, you, you, we, we, all the things that we were discussing. What do you think the consequence, the consequences of uh, the global, our, our sort of globalized uh, uh, population structure is today? Like, we we don't we no longer live in bands of dozens or just a couple hundred people where everyone you know and interact with is literally yeah. at your wedding. How do you think that and and the technologies we use to communicate today? You know, our smartphones and all of this stuff. Can you anticipate any ways that might uh, cause our language to evolve in, in a different kind of way than it has historically? I'm not sure it will cause our language to evolve um, in, in different ways because we're mostly using it in person-to-person interactions, even like we are to, today across mm-hmm. you know, long distances and, 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 and so on. But I think one of the things that will happen is that we're going to be shifting more and more um, on, onto social phenomena. So, you know, in the past, when you wanted, wanted to make an agreement, I couldn't trust you just to say, you know, your words, as I promised to do this, now let's shake hands, let's touch. Um, and that means, you know, so there's, we've got an index here of agreement. You know, we're not fighting, we're, we're agreeing. Um, when you can't do that, maybe what you can do is have a different kind of index. Um, I give you a piece of paper that has some things that you read and they say this is what, what you can do and you can't do. Um, you have to indicate that you agree by writing your signature on it. Your signature says that I was physically there. Me, I was physically there exposed to this. This is an index. It's a much more powerful link than just the okie-doke of language. Language is disconnected in a way that a signature is more connected. Um, we're now developing ways of doing that at a, at a greater distance. One of the features is that as we begin to offload those direct interactions, tr- issues of trust, issues of cooperation are much more difficult to maintain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to develop extra tools to do this. One of the challenges is that also, I think the internet has done something else that we've constructed these systems based upon, you might say, a logic that's irrelevant to the communication. So, for example, in order to 
to keep people looking at a particular website, I've got to make them like it. I've got to make them, you know, find all oh, this next piece of information is more interesting. I'll follow that. So just for the financial structure of creating these systems, we've created certain biases in transmission. We've now noticed the consequence of these biases, that negative information, that surprising information, that 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 threatening information, um, explicit sexual information, this stuff tends to be reproduced much more rapidly. So there's there's a different selection pressures have become into play and they come into play very rapidly of what gets communicated. And that's gonna structure things very, very differently. I think one of the things that, that I'm looking forward to but not quite clear how it's gonna affect, affect us is the way that, that artificial intelligence is gonna allow us to communicate across languages effortlessly. That is simultaneous communication is gonna be what everybody has available to them as we have knowledge available to us by looking at our smartphones these days. Um, all of that's there. But notice that this is gonna get us back to where we started in our conversation about redundancy. Mm. Um, I start one of the chapters in my book by talking about smartphones and how we've become addicted to our smartphones. I no longer know the numbers, the phone numbers of people I used to know. I no longer know addresses, but I now have access to hundreds of more addresses and phone numbers than I ever had before. Um, but if the power goes out, if the grid goes down, I'm really disadvantaged. Um, I've become addicted at the same time. But this leads me back to a, a story that's as ancient as philosophy itself. In, in Plato's Phaedrus, um, Socrates um, says that if, you know, men learn writing. They learn writing and reading. It's going to degrade their memories. <laughs> They're going to be stupider. Maybe this is not a good idea. And yet, obviously, we've learned reading and writing. Um, we now have offloaded a lot of memory onto this stuff. Um, I don't necessarily know all the things that I've actually learned in classes, but I can go back to the books and find it. Um, but because of this, of course, I also know what Socrates thought or what Plato thought. <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, yeah. of course, it degraded some capacities, but it gave us other capacities. This is that relaxation effect. Um, there's been a relaxation of selection on memory, but it allowed other things to develop. Um, that's happening socially. I think it's going to radically, in the next generation, over the next couple of generations, radically change the structures of societies. I'm not sure it's going to do it in, the, in all useful directions but it will radically change it. You know, a, a lot of people are now using and talking about and speculating about things like generative AI. So when, when you look at technologies like chat GPT and these large language models, we call them large language models because we're feeding in human text made out of yeah, human language into them. The yeah. In what sense are these systems using or not using language and symbolic cognition? One of the things that I think is most interesting that's come out of this work is that we can also use large language models um, sticking in these letters. We have 20 letters for all the amino acids in a protein. Um, we know the structure of some proteins. One of the problems is that we have not known for years and years how the sequence of amino acids cause proteins to fold. Mm -hmm. 
It turns out now, beginning first of all with a group called uh, out of OpenAI Alpha Folds, um, they fed in what we know about which amino acids follow which amino acids and how that causes a protein to fold. We know the folds of those proteins, some that we know. Can we now just sort of train it on all, all those that we know and now feed in a random sequence of amino acid letters? And will it tell us how something folds? Well, it turns out that AlphaFold and now three or four different versions of this have used a large language model structure to predict how proteins fold. Now, here's the, here's the important thing. Proteins fold because of their chemist, chemical environment. They fold because of um, hydrophobic and hydrophilic effects, because of stiffness effects, and so on, because of the sequence of which they come out, some are exposed to an environment before others are. It's a complicated physical chemical process. The large language models that predict protein folding don't know anything about the chemistry or the physics. And yet they're able, using this huge statistical capacity, to make good predictions about how proteins will fold. We can now use this statistical prediction to go back and figure out. In other words, we, we've got, it's like, you know, I want to learn the math by going to the back of the book and looking up the answer before I can figure out how to use the equation. Mm -hmm. That's what we've got. We've got the back of the book. There is no knowledge in the system. But the skeleton of the process, you might say the syntax, or you might even say the fossil of that information is there. It's structured. Those physical processes produced structure. And now we can use statistics to look at the correlational structure and then use that correlational information once we've got the structure to go back and try to analyze, to learn it. So this is helping the science. But now let's think about this, the same analogy for language. We have terabytes of conversations on the web that were scoured to build into these systems and then testing them on predicting how well it produced, auto-correction kind of thing. Um, the structure of that communication that was on the web was structured by people's interests, by meanings, by references, by things in the world, by science, by literature. The structure was produced there. That's the an analogy to the chemistry and the physics of protein folding. But notice that the large language model doesn't have any of that. It's not related to the world in any way. It's completely isolated, but it's got the structure that was there. I like to think about it as the fossil of the living speech, mm. the living communication. But if we've got enough fossil evidence, we can reconstruct this and now using our knowledge of language, and meaning and reference. We can now do what the biologists could do, looking at protein folding and say, I can use that information and I can reconstruct its meaning. It's in the case of the molecular biologists, I can learn something about the chemistry of it in terms of um, you or I using this generative AI, I can learn something about the meaning of something that I might not have known. I can use it to create a Shakespeare sonnet about planets and solar systems. Um, why? Because it's got that structure. But that structure, since it 
carried with it all the biases, all the structured biases of communication. When I pump new stuff into it and have it come out, it'll come out in a way that's interpretable. It gives me information. So I think it's going to be incredibly useful. But of course, as we know, it can be incredibly troublesome as well for all the same reasons. But this is why these new technologies are going to be very useful in the sciences, because they're giving us the answer before we know the, the details of the question yet. Um, but we can use it, we can retrodict. We can use it to go back and figure out, okay, that gives me a clue as to how it was formed. Maybe I can use that. The problem is that we, we tend to fail the Turing test here. We're so gullible. It produces something that looks like it understands something. And we think, oh, it's got understanding. It's got a mind. It's got sentience. It's got thoughts. <laughs> None of that stuff. Any more than simulating the movements of planets on a computer is gravity. There's no gravity. There's no mass. It's just the formal structure. But it's enough to do incredible things. We can use that formal simulation to guess at new laws. We can use the simulation of protein folding in these systems to get at the chemistry and physics. Earlier, we were discussing... Um, by we by were... the way, I'm going to stop us here because if I don't break in five or ten minutes, I'm in big trouble. Oh. I, I have a physician's appointment coming up. Okay. Yes, no problem. Um, well, Terrence, thank you for your time. Uh, always love talking to you. This is the third episode you've done with me. Um I highly recommend uh, for those listening, the first two episodes, they're about his books, Incomplete Nature and The Symbolic Species. Um, we got into various subjects that tie into each of those. Um, but if you're interested in this stuff, uh, those are great places to dive in. And I'm definitely looking forward to your next book. Falling up. All right, Dr. Terrence Deacon, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot. Hey everyone, I want to take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.